Hey, everybody, we are starting a new series this week leading up to Easter. We're calling it Good News because we think that most of the people we know and most of us, too, I would think, could stand some good news right now. In the Bible, the word gospel is a Greek word, euangelion, which is also where we get evangelical and evangelism. And it literally means good news. And if you've been around the evangelical church much, as many of us have, then you've probably heard that gospel explained more or less like this. We are sinners who deserve to die and be separated from God forever. But Jesus took our sins upon himself and died in our place so that if we believe in Jesus, we will get to go to heaven when we die. Good news. Except as many of us know, in order to get to the good part of that news, we have to convince most people that they are miserable sinners who deserve death, which is not an easy sell a lot of the time. The reality is that for many people today, and it seems like more and more each year, that message doesn't sound like good news, and you really can't blame them when you think about it. And trying to tell them that message as if it were good news, it just kind of feels tone deaf, irrelevant, futile. So what do we do? Write them off as particularly miserable sinners who don't even know good news when they hear it? Keep telling people that same message because, hey, then at least our conscience is clear? I mean, we did what we could. Just conclude that the good news has lost its relevance for our culture? We thought maybe we could go back to the Bible and see how it talks about why Jesus is good news because what has gotten lost along the way is the truth that the Bible doesn't just talk about good news one way as a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. That one-size-fits-all gospel that I mentioned earlier, it makes things simple, yes, but it also loses a lot in narrowing down the message because in Scripture, instead, we find that news told a multitude of ways in a multitude of settings because the writers of scripture knew something that we seem to have forgotten, that Jesus is good news to all people, that Jesus is the answer to all of our deepest questions and fears, that the news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is always good and should be received that way. So each week, this series, we're going to look at one of the ways the Bible talks about good news and explore together how that news might be good even today. Our hope is that two things would happen during this series, that we would each reconnect with why Jesus is good news to us, and that we would be equipped with a better, more complete, more good vocabulary for those times when we might get the chance to talk to someone else about how Jesus might be good news for them. So that's what's coming in this series, and what you're going to hear next is the sermon that I gave this Sunday. As we've mentioned before, we are now rat owners. The boys have wanted a pet, and Leslie, actually, suggested rats. And they've been a really good match for our kids so far. We heard from people before we got them that they're extremely social. We heard that they would start to get a sense of our daily schedule. And those things have definitely been true. And, and here's how that actually plays out. See, the rats' days go something like this. The boys wake up and get them out to play for a half hour or an hour in the mornings, then put them back in their cage. Then after school, when the boys get home, they get the rats out to play for a little while before dinner. And then after the kids go to bed, Meredith feels bad for the rats and decides to get them out one more time. Now, since the boys' rooms are obviously not available at that point, and since we still don't trust the littler two rats not to just find a cozy spot like underneath the refrigerator or something and then literally never come out again, she takes them into our bathroom and I guess sits on the tile floor while they run around and climb on her. I don't know. Our evenings are wild. 
in the Miller house, as you can tell. So that's the rat's day right there. And what that means is on a day when it's, say, 3.30 in the afternoon and the boys haven't gotten home from the park yet or something like that, if you were to walk by the rat's cage to get a snack or, or after I put the kids to bed, if you were to wander by to get something to drink, this is what you would see. Three rats clinging to the side of the cage like Spider-Man or something, shuffling along with you as you move by. And then if you move back the other way, then they move back too. Because they know what time it is. They know that it is playtime. It's really funny, but also it kind of perfectly illustrates just how desperate they are for time to play, to be social. It's like a dog jumping up and frantically wagging their tail when the owner gets home. It's also like this time a few months ago when we went to the beach. And we would be trying to play catch with our kids or build a sandcastle or play in the waves or whatever. And the whole time, this other kid, who was probably in between our kids' ages kept popping up. Can I play? Can I do that too? Do you want to play catch? And he was saying that to me and to Meredith, not as much to our boys. And there were times when it was fine, but to be honest, I was getting kind of annoyed too. When I'm trying to play in the waves with my kids and this stranger kid keeps asking me to play catch with him instead, it's like, look, I'm I'm sorry, but I'm not going to not play with my kids so that I can play something with you. I, I don't know you. And The whole time, his mom is over under an umbrella, staring at her phone. A little while later, his dad came out of the water with a spear fishing gun, and they all packed up and left. See, it's funny when the rats show how desperate they are for family. It's cute when a dog does it. It hurts when it's a kid. I've mentioned this story before, but when I was 13, we moved from the San Francisco suburbs to rural Michigan, which was a bit of a transition for me. And I became really close friends with one girl in particular because she had also moved there that same summer with her one-year-older brother. And we ended up going to the same church and a bunch of us from the youth group would regularly go over to their house to hang out. And I started noticing that while we kids were playing ping pong downstairs or watching Dumb and Dumber or just acting dumb and dumber, a couple of the kids would regularly peel off from the rest of us almost as soon as they walked through the front door. They would beeline to the kitchen where Jeanette, the mom, would be fixing dinner or Steve, the dad, would be reading at the paper at the island or something. And there was this one kid in particular. His name was Andy. He was a really sweet kid, really rough around the edges. The kind of kid where you don't totally think about it when you're 13, but when you look back on it, you just know there was some really, really hard stuff going on at home. And Andy would spend hours just talking to Steve and Jeanette, like literally hours while the rest of us were downstairs. Why? Because they took him seriously. They listened to him. They didn't care what dumb stuff had gotten him in trouble with the police the night before or suspended from school last week. They loved him. So it's pretty simple. Why did he keep showing up to talk to his friend's parents for hours at a time? Because the Fergusons offered him family. And for Andy, that was really good news. We all need family. We all need a place to belong. And when we don't have it, and let's face it, a lot of us don't, we'll do the human equivalent of rats doing a Spider-Man impression on the side of a cage. Family's a place where you, you are accepted. It's a place where you belong, a place where you're loved and cared for. And here's the key thing. No matter what. 
A family is where there is a commitment to one another that cannot be broken, or at least puts up with huge strain before it breaks. There is a no-matter-what commitment to a family that goes beyond affection for one another, kindness to one another. It's what I think is the key to family as it should be. That sense that my belonging is not dependent on what I bring to the table. This love doesn't go away if I screw up once or twice, or when people realize that I'm not quite as lovable as I try to make myself appear. That's family. No matter what. We don't all have that. There's a lot of people who don't have that in our world, which is at least a part of the epidemic of loneliness and anxiety and depression that our society faces. It's not the only reason by any means, but it's a part of it. For those people who long for a place to securely belong, which is all of us, isn't it? Some of us have been more fortunate than others in being able to find it, but I think we all know what it's like to long for it at some point in our lives. And when you're in that place, it sure would be good news to be invited into a family. In Galatians, we get a letter written by Paul to the church in a region called Galatia, which is in modern-day central Turkey. And the setup for this letter, so far as we can piece together from what Paul has to say, is that a group had started teaching the Christians in Galatia that in order to be really good Christians— They needed to follow Jewish law, meaning be circumcised, keep kosher, keep Sabbath, that sort of thing. To Paul, this is a big problem. So he writes a letter. And in the letter, he tells the story of how he became the Apostle Paul. How Jesus appeared to him, and then he went to Jerusalem and met with Peter and James, and then got this sense that God was calling him to take the good news to the Gentiles because they were included in this amazing thing that Jesus had done. And Peter and James said, yes, go do that. But then he got wind of something that disturbed him. And in Galatians 2.11, it says this, But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. We heard this story of how this came about a couple months back where Peter gets a vision from God telling him to go and eat with Gentiles. Even though as a good observant Jew, he had been taught that they were unclean and would make him unclean. This was a big deal for Peter, a a huge shift in worldview and practice. It was opening up fellowship, family, to Gentiles in complete opposition to how Peter had been taught to think about family up until that point. So that's what Paul's saying. Peter used to be like this. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction, the people from Jerusalem, what they would think. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas, who was Paul's close companion in bringing the good news to the Gentiles, even Barnabas was led astray. But, Paul says, when I saw that they were not acting consistently, With the truth of the gospel, the good news, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So let's pause there for a second to make sure we are tracking with what Paul is saying here. (laughs) Paul is sometimes 
more concise than clear, <laughs> and it's helpful to unpack things a bit. And for this, I should say that I'm relying heavily on N.T. Wright's scholarship. Uh, two books in particular, one is called Justification, and the other is his big, fat, thick book, and it's called Paul and the Faithfulness of God. So a lot of what I'm going to say here is from one of those two books, or both of them. Okay, so back to Galatians. Remember, the issue here is that the Jews have stopped eating with the Gentiles. So when Paul accuses Peter and the others of hypocrisy and of living like a Gentile instead of a Jew, he isn't saying that they are frequenting pagan temple prostitutes or living immorally or something like that. He's saying that they used to eat with Gentiles in violation of Torah, the Jewish law, and now they've stopped. They are pretending to be good Jews now, separating themselves off from the Gentiles, But Paul's saying, if you're going to go back to living by Torah, you've already broken the law. You are already, as he says, self-condemned because of what you used to do. And crucially, when Paul says that in doing this, they are not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, the good news, what good news does he mean? It's not the good news that your sins are forgiven and you get to go to heaven when you die. They didn't stop eating because they thought the Gentiles were morally bad people or weren't going to heaven, they stopped because they were Gentiles, and Jews are supposed to stay separate. Peter and the others have forgotten the good news that now, because of Jesus, Gentiles get to be a part of the family of God. Because if that's the case, if they are part of the family, then Gentiles get to pull up a chair at the family dinner table. N.T. Wright makes the case that it's important to keep that context in mind while we read the next part of this chapter. Interpreters sometimes take this next part of the chapter in a totally different direction and forget about the specific context that Paul is addressing here. We ourselves, Paul says, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. When Paul says justified here, he didn't suddenly start talking about guilt and forgiveness and going to heaven when we die and trying to earn our salvation by doing good things. He is clearly still talking about membership in God's family. That's the context he is trying to address. Being justified, or declared righteous, as it could also be translated, means in this context to be declared by God that you are truly a member of God's family. You are welcome here, in this people. The question is, how? Do you get included in God's family by keeping Torah, which means, among other things, circumcision, keeping Sabbath, keeping kosher, and not eating with Gentiles. That's what Peter, James, and Paul have always been taught. What makes me part of a God's family? I I was born a Jew, and I do the practices that separate me out as one of God's holy people. I do the works of the law. And that doesn't mean just any old good moral stuff. It means the particular works of the law that separate me out as a Jew. But we know, Paul says, that it's actually through faith in Jesus that we get included in the family of God. And that means there is just one family, just one dinner table. To separate out like Peter is doing, as it says in verse 18, is to build up the very things that we once tore down. 
that wall separating Jew and Gentile to build that back up again. But if you do that, Peter, you're only showing yourself to be a transgressor because you haven't been separating yourself up until now. So do you really want to go back to that way, Peter? Because that way doesn't look all that good for you either anymore. Paul is challenging Peter and the others to actually live by the logic of the good news they already know to be true. And Paul closes the chapter this way, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The law for Paul is not bad. And he goes on in chapter 3, which we don't have time to get into tonight, unfortunately, to say how necessary the law was. But the law is fulfilled in Jesus. And with Jesus' death and resurrection, the reason the law existed in the first place is over. God's plan was always that there would be one people of God, one table. And as necessary and good as Torah was, it was only ever going to be able to create two tables, one for Jews and one for Gentiles. But now that Jesus, God's son, has died and been raised, the table has been widened in ways that God always intended, that through the children of Abraham, God's blessing would go out to all the earth. The old is gone, the new has come, and that new thing is good news, that membership in God's family is open to all who believe, all who are ready to join in the dying to old things and raising in new things that Jesus' death and resurrection represents. All who have done this, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, realize that there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is not male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's the promise that God made to Abraham that we talked about a few weeks back that Abraham's family, his one family, would bless the whole world. Because of Jesus, you are one, Paul is saying to the Galatians, not because you became like the Jewish people, but because you became like Jesus. That is the good news of Jesus. Come be a part of this family, not because you do the right things, but because you want to be a part of the new life that Jesus offers. Sounds like good news, right? So why were Peter and his friends not doing it? Because they were going to lose something. Lose face, lose relationships, lose status maybe. Let's read Galatians 3.28 again, because I'm not so sure we hear its implications very well from 2,000 years away, where it sounds like, yes, good, equality, yeah, no racism, woo, no sexism, yes, no slavery, of course, And it does, of course, mean all those things. In fact, I'd argue that the primary reason our culture is, however slowly and agonizingly moving away from racism and sexism and slavery, it's because of the ideas that Jesus introduced into our culture 2,000 years ago. But that's another story. Back to Galatians 3.28. A Jew listening at that time to, there is no longer Jew or Greek, would hear, if I believe this, and act on it. I'm not going to be able to eat with the majority of my friends or family ever again. 
because I will have eaten with unclean Gentiles and identified with them. A person of high status culturally at that time, listening to there is no longer slave or free, would hear, if I believe this and act on it, I might never be invited to another dinner party because my social standing in the hierarchy of our culture will drop like a stone. And in fact, in the book of Philemon, we actually get Paul writing a letter to a Christian slave owner, not so gently implying, huh, let me just make sure I'm getting this straight here. So your slave is a Christian too, huh? Which means you're brothers in Christ, right? Hmm. So you've enslaved your brother. Is that right? Huh. Gosh, I wonder what you should do next. I'll, I'll just leave that up to you. So there you go. The, the book of Philemon paraphrased. <laughs> but back to Galatians. A man hearing, there is no male and female. is thinking, wait, 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 what? In fact, there are examples in history of people um, drawing the wrong conclusions of what was going on inside the Christian churches when they heard that women and men were talking to each other and they weren't even married scandalous. Being a family costs something because it means I don't get to pick and choose who I relate to based on what I get out of it. When I think back to Steve and Jeanette, while I'm sure there were some rewarding parts of talking with Andy, I'm willing to bet that most of the time it was tedious. They weren't getting something out of it, but Andy was family because Jesus said so. And so they were going to sacrifice a few hours on their Sunday afternoon because that's what you do in a family. We talk about our values a lot here. And if I were just to give you the outline of this sermon, your first thought might be, oh yeah, authenticity, being a community that brings our full selves to God together. Yeah, that fits perfectly. Diversity, Jew and Greek, male, female, and non-binary all eating together. Yeah, that's great. And yes, the good news that all are welcome in the family of God does certainly inform those values. But I wonder if what it requires the most is a third of our values, and that's sacrifice. Being a family means sacrifice. It means giving of myself for the good of others, even if I don't get anything in return. That is Paul's point, after all. We have died with Christ and live a new life shaped by that sacrifice. That's how family is made, no matter what.